You are lying. I never hit you. You are tearing me apart, Lisa. Welcome to the Canacast, the exciting new podcast about the trend that's sweeping the nation among young professionals in the creative class. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Uh, Luke Savage here, folks, uh, bringing you reviews of all your favorite strains, uh, whether you're looking to synergize, collaborate, create, or, you know, just chill out. We've got reviews of all your favorite bud or uh, cannabis, as we're now calling it. I mean, as a lifelong member of the Conservative Party of Canada, for years I associated marijuana with poor and racialized people. But now that I've realized that it is an exciting investment opportunity, (laughs) I'm excited to rebrand the Michael and Us podcast. Uh, Folks, (laughs) marijuana is legal in Canada, and we are recording this episode at 4.20 p.m. Oh, yeah. No, we're actually uh, we're actually recording it at the usual time, a little bit late, sipping a fine vintage, courtesy of Wayne Gretzky Estates, uh, official sponsor of Michael and Us podcast. I like to support the Conservative Party indirectly by buying wine from Wayne Gretzky Estates. We're, Sorry, the guy, the man makes good wine. We're, we're a supporter of Canadian content on Michael and Us. It's the uh, it's the 2016 very good year. Marijuana, or as they call it now, cannabis, was legalized in Canada this week. It's been it's been pretty insufferable. Luke and I have been rocking the 420 <laughs> lifestyle ever since. Uh, Tommy Chong, um, having achieved his life's goal, just committed seppuku, and it, it was a be- it was a beautiful sight. All of his fans were there to cheer him on as he as he as he plunged the knife in. Did you see on uh, in like November 2016 when when Trump was elected and and there was some at the same time there was some kind of popular referenda in Boston or somewhere where that legalized weed and then the next day Tommy Chong was tweeting like we did it man (laughs) I do remember that. You know, fun fact about me, I once interviewed Tommy Chong for the varsity. (laughs) Really? I spoke to him on the phone. I do remember this. And I don't care at all about (laughs) Cheech and Chong, but one of the things about working at a student newspaper is every now and then you'll get an email in the inbox that's like, hey, you want to interview Tommy Chong? Yeah. You're like, sure. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Well, you also interviewed Ken of Ken and Barbie fame. Oh, yeah. That was a a lot of great interviews. Yeah, Mattel set that up. (laughs) Half of my interviews at the student newspaper were just like, I did ironically. <laughs> well, because what's great is you would get like these emails, like half of what gets sent to a student newspaper is just, there's these publicists that I, this was like a whole tier of the profession that I didn't know existed. These publicists that just work for mega corporations and they're trying to sell student journalists on the idea that, you know, what's really, you know, hip and cool is you should, you should come and chill at the Verizon festival or whatever. (laughs) And, uh, and they'd offer to like fly you out and then, um, and they'd be really insulted if you did. And they'd be insulted if you did. Don't you understand? Like kids love Red Bull. Don't, don't you want to come and, and incubate some ideas with us about, you know, for, for, for some quality hashtag content? Oh God, my biggest heartbreak, we'll get back to cannabis in a minute, but my (laughs) biggest heartbreak at the varsity was... I was told that I was going to be flown out to the Valkyrie <laughs> junket and I would meet Tom Cruise. In Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. And it didn't happen because they didn't finish the movie in time. I was despondent over that. Of all the, of all the Tom Cruise things to meet him over, I love, I love the idea yeah. <laughs> you meet him at Valkyrie. <laughs> so cannabis is legal. And uh, how are you feeling? Are you cashing in? 
<laughs> yeah, it's great. All my stocks have been shooting up. It's fantastic. Something you have to understand about the legalization of marijuana slash cannabis in Canada is that all of the worst people, all of the right-wing people are now boards of directors on cannabis corporations, whether it's former Toronto police chief Julian Fantino, who jailed God knows how many people (laughs) on drug-related charges, or even former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. (laughs) Is he in on it? Yes, he is on the board of directors of some company or other. (laughs) And I like to think they're carrying on their principled anti-cannabis stance by doing everything they can to keep it out of the hands of entrepreneurs. (laughs) You know, small businesses, no. (laughs) It really is like a big business-led thing, and I love the idea of these former police chiefs or whatever all being like the vp at something called like canna start or whatever well it feels like you know 1984 is brought up i think a a little too often (laughs) but it does feel a little bit like we were always at war with east asia it's like you you go to major cultural events like the toronto film festival or something and they're like oh we're excited to announce our new partnership with canacore in in, in yeah. innovation industries <laughs> yeah. and, and it's like wait wasn't it just like two years ago mm-hmm. that politicians were saying that this is a major moral crime yeah. I, I and i love i love how the gentrification of the lexicon around mm-hmm. weed has kind of proceeded apace so yeah we're now calling it cannabis yes. because that has a much more clinical you know connotation and uh and all the sort of, you know, Bob Marley iconography is very quickly being sort of edged out uh, by, <laughs> by, you know, words that were invented by focus groups to sell things needlessly to like upper middle class urban professionals like yeah. boutique and vintage. Yeah. And why is it happening now? It's because of imminent environmental collapse, <laughs> because the powerful have decided since this is coming, we should dull everyone's senses for just a little bit. I mean, bit. you joke, but I do feel like part of the reason it's happening and part of the reason why the like the target. <laughs> audience of these businesses the target market is like it is actually just urban professionals that live in like yeah you know swanky high-rises and stuff you know it's that silicon valley thing you're actually part of the precariat but we're gonna do everything we can to convince you that you're actually part of a privileged class because you get to put some oil you know mm-hmm. in your drink that's called like you know budweiser with a hyphen and then wiser is spelled with an i also <laughs> cannabis is self-care right that's right so, yeah so it absolutely. takes your mind off your miserable life yeah it takes off your mind your mind off the like 15 hours of coding that you have to do yeah it, it, it helps you get to sleep quicker so that you have less free so that time. You, so that you can be a good little neoliberal subject in the morning when you wake up and also, by the way, the only place that it's currently legal to buy is from the Ontario Cannabis Store online. They don't have actual, like, physical brick-and-mortar well, stores all the, yet. Well, all the dispensaries, of course, were put, out of, <laughs> were put out of business. Yeah, so the only place you get is online. The price is not good. Well, just... and, and I should say, like, if you're one of our listeners in the States, you need to understand that cannabis was, excuse me, weed was de facto legal for middle-class people in Canada like it has been for Mm. for years and I don't just mean like the cops would look the other way if you bought it off a dealer or whatever I mean there were actual stores dispensaries in downtown Toronto they were sort of periodically and kind of arbitrarily raided by the cops but basically they would just reopen Mm -hmm. and people have been able to get this it's been in a kind of peculiar legal purgatory since at least 2015 they go in and they say oh I have glaucoma and then and then they get yeah, they got a brownie. The, yeah, that's yeah. the right. That's the the veil. That's the pretense. Mm-hmm. One more thing I want to address before we get to the main topic of this episode is friend of the show Gavin McInnes, 
uh, subject of our episode on the classic film How to Be a Man. You know, normally I believe in separating the artist from the art, but I have to admit I have not been able to watch How to Be a Man ever quite, s- quite the same way ever since, since Trump has become president. <laughs> the Proud Boys have been in the news this week for, uh, I guess, escalating their violence. I saw a tweet this week from NBC News that was getting passed around where they said, The Proud Boys, a nationalist movement of mostly young white males, is drawing new recruits every day. Their leader, Gavin McInnes, argues they are not white supremacists and are only speaking up for a new class of minority, which makes it sound kind of like a cool lifestyle brand or a a trend piece. That's one of my favorite tropes of the new far right is the fact that ostensibly the whole thing is a backlash to this kind of postmodern identity politics, but all it is is just identity politics Mm -hmm. and it uses all the same language, but without any of the legitimate social justice grievances attached to it. And you know, Profiles are still being written of Gavin McInnes. You know, I've spent too That's much of my life reading Gavin McInnes profiles. You know, from from hipster to far right provocateur. I really, I really think we need to move. Well, when I say we, I don't actually mean we. I really think the metropolitan media class needs to move past this thing of being gobsmacked and awestruck at. Oh, but this is like a this is like a rich white hipster, and they're and they're racist. I mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it made me realize that. Gavin McInnes could come back into polite society so easily. Oh, yeah. All he has to do is say some not very nice things about Trump. Oh, my God. And he just has to pose in a funny picture with Samantha Bee, <laughs> who used to be his friend, by the way. Really? Uh, yeah, although to to her credit, she has, I think, since disowned Distanced him. Distanced herself. <laughs> Gavin had a really amazing Sun News video called All My Celebrity Friends Won't Talk to Me Anymore, and I think she was one of the ones who wouldn't talk to him anymore. <laughs> but that's all, all it needs to be. Trump needs to get reelected, which will happen. And <laughs> you know it'll happen. And sh- and he just needs to pose in a picture with, I don't know, John Oliver or something like the yeah. like the famous Samantha B picture with Glenn Beck. Yeah. And it's, it's and like, people people forget about Gavin McInnes's video, Ten Things I Hate About the Jews. Yeah. Which was an actual video that he did. And it'll just be, you know what? It's all of us against Trumpism. <laughs> and then Gavin it's will It's time be, to unite with the moderate conservatives. Yeah, and Gavin <laughs> will be welcomed back into polite society. It'll be so easy. And you know, a lot of people, I guess, since they've all they also grew up with Gavin McInnes because of his vice stuff, yeah. still have kind of a reservoir of good feeling towards it's him. It's hard to believe. I have to say, I mean f- in my case, I don't think I really heard about him until he was already, uh, I mean, I guess I vaguely knew who he was, but I don't think I would have recognized him by his face without, yeah. you know, w- until his turn. He, him as a phenomenon was definitely before our time. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, I think, left Vice Media in 2008. I kind of pinpoint the moment when he became irretrievably toxic to, I think, 2013, when he wrote that Thought Catalog article called, I think it was it's perfectly okay to be transphobic or something right, like that. Right, right, right. Which was also the beginning of kind of thought catalog, like the, the takeover by the right. Yeah, it's too bad. You know, there's some classic Will Sloan on thought catalog. <laughs> there was your your think piece about Judge Judy, a favorite of mine. <laughs> that was one that I wrote. It, it, took a, it took about as long to read as it took to write. <laughs> but look, we're here to celebrate the 420 lifestyle, and there's no better way to do that than by talking about Tommy Wiseau's 2015 sitcom, The Neighbors. But really, <laughs> this is the Tommy Wiseau episode. Tommy Wiseau, in addition to Michael Moore, is one of those <laughs> cultural phenomena that bonded Luke and I in our early days. I thought you were going to say, you know, one of those one of those figures who was 
you know, so central to our worldview in the early 2000s. Well, that know, too. I mean, as it, we've shifted to the socialist left, we've had to. <laughs> I saw him. I saw the room, and I realized that you know, you can you can do anything provided you have you know a ten million dollar fortune <laughs> that you could just blow. You can be a a, to- a totally awful man and just <laughs> behave reprehensibly. might think that in doing a Tommy Wiseau episode, we're going to center the room, and obviously we're going to have to talk about it, but we wanted to really bring to the fore something that, you know, Will and I have now seen or partly seen twice, which is two more times than anyone else, <laughs> um, and that is his very unsuccessful follow-up to the room. I mean, it's unsuccessful in that it doesn't even have a cult following. It's just nothing. Mm -hmm. And that is his sitcom, The Neighbors. We have actually seen it in its entirety, which is more than most of the cast, I'm sure, can say. Mm -hmm. You know, there's six episodes of varying lengths. The first one is like 35 minutes, and then by the third one, it's down to 18, then jumps back up to 21. Good art doesn't need structure is the lesson here. Now, Tommy Wiseau, as a phenomenon, peaked... I think at exactly the right time for us. We were in our early 20s. I remember The Room, which is the so bad it's good movie of this millennium. (laughs) It started having midnight screenings in Toronto in 2009. The Room, of course, came out in 2003, and it was discovered by, you know, Los Angeles alt comedians, people like David David Cross, Cross. you know. Um, By the time that we were in university, it had become kind of a hipster cult phenomenon. Maybe we should just explain the the concept of Tommy Wiseau for those who don't know, although I'm sure everyone does know at this point. But I mean, for the uninitiated, I mean, if you haven't seen The Room or you're unfamiliar with it, it really is strange territory. So we should probably provide some exposition for people. Tommy Wiseau is a middle-aged, although perhaps even older by now, man who is of vaguely Eastern European descent. He may have at some point said where he came from. I think he's cosmopolitan like Steven Seagal. (laughs) Yeah, but he emigrated to the United States. He probably has some mental health issues. Uh, He is independently wealthy, and we're not quite sure the source of his money, but he owns a lot of property. He's an an early winner in the the cryptocurrency market, perhaps. He dreamed of becoming a movie star like his idol, James Dean. And in a way, he did with his 2003 film, (laughs) The Room, which is kind of a melodrama, a a cri de cour, where it's about a man not unlike him who is betrayed by everyone who he knows, not unlike him in real life, and he kills himself. I'm sure most of you listening will probably have seen The Room. It's one of those things, for those who haven't seen it, it's kind of so bad that it's good. (laughs) If you haven't seen it, you should see it. It's a very enjoyable movie. And you know, actually, if, if it's 2018 and you haven't seen The Room, you're kind of in luck because it is a unique viewing experience, but it was like so many cult things. It was kind of a victim of its own success. It went from being a really genuine cult cultural artifact to, you know, something that, you know, was kind of getting passed around in like university dorm rooms, things like that to something that, you know, kind of went a little bigger Thanks. Uh, in, in I just poured Luke a glass of wine, by the way. That, I'm sure that picked up on the audience. 2016, very good year. The room was passed around in university dorms and things like that, and then it kind of went big. And, uh, you know, in Toronto at the Royal Cinema, there were regular screenings of it. 
it was a fun night out. Some people would go every month. I wouldn't do that, but you know, it, it was it became a whole kind of ritual. But inevitably, the genuine kind of joie de vivre, you know, the irony kind of became exhausted. And what you had was sort of douchey hipsterdom. And and now I gather you were saying that it's kind of become more of like it's sort of doing the frat house circuit now. When Luke suggested Tommy Wiseau as an episode topic, I wasn't immediately sold. I was trying to think what is a political entry point into this but one of the political entry points is that the room is a very misogynistic movie uh-huh it's all about this you know shrewish woman mm-hmm. who totally takes advantage and you know cocks this yeah. man and he commits suicide at the end you mm-hmm. know in a blaze of glory I mean, it's really just Tommy Wiseau fantasizing like Huck Finn watching his own <laughs> funeral or something like that but I remember Luke and I went to see The Room at the Royal, you know, early in its run. And whenever the Lisa character says or does something dumb, the audience goes, because you're a woman. And when we saw it, it was mostly women who were leading that Mm -hmm. chant. It was almost like this feminist reclamation of a very problematic text. Right, because it I mean, it's so cartoonishly misogynistic, the, the time anyway... It was too misogynistic to be threatening because the misogyny was so overt. Mm -hmm. Now, I've seen The Room a few times in theatrical context, but I haven't seen it lately. And from what I gather, the audience has gotten a little broier, a little frattier, and it's become a more unpleasant experience. So imagine a theater full of men saying, because you're a woman. Yeah. I mean, it made me think, as much as I love The Room, its misogyny isn't as funny as it used to be. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Of course, there was all the other great uh, rituals that went along with watching The Room in a community setting. Mm -hmm. My favorite one being The Spoons, which for those who haven't seen The Room, and I don't know, no one listening to this hasn't seen The Room, but one of the defining features in the the mise-en-scene that your eyes notice it in The Room itself is framed cutlery on the walls. So they would actually hand out, uh, or you would simply bring along with you, plastic cutlery. And then every time these appeared on screen, you would just yell, spoon! And everybody, there would be like a shower of plastic cutlery in the theater, which was fun. Tommy Wiseau, I guess, hit his zenith as a mainstream force just last year with the release of James Franco's Oscar season movie, The Disaster Artist, based on the best-selling book by Greg Sestero. You saw The Disaster Artist, right? Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I liked it too. I thought James Franco was really good in it. I really enjoyed the book, The Disaster Artist. But I guess another political entry point to this, this great article by Judy Berman in The Baffler a few months ago called The Streaming Void. And Judy Berman takes a rather jaundiced view towards the room, and she says... But the awards bait Tommy Wiseau is a lighter character than the mean, narcissistic, borderline stalker Greg Sestero describes, and the movie's tale of a weirdo's unlikely triumph rings hollow when you consider that people with $6 million of disposable income can pretty much do whatever they want. And then later she says, It makes an unfortunate sort of sense when you consider our current political reality that we've spent so much time and money celebrating the stupid, misogynistic vanity project of a self-described real estate tycoon with piles of possibly ill-gotten cash. Cult movies used to be scruffy, desperately original, and intermittently brilliant. Works of transgressive art that left audiences energized and sometimes radicalized. The Room, which is bad art, but art nonetheless, does the opposite. 
The mirror it holds up is the underside of a dirty metal spoon. The reflection you see in it is blurry but genuine. So what's sadder? That it set the prototype for the 21st century American cult film, or that it might wind up being our last enduring cult hit? <laughs> I mean, we've got to talk about The Neighbors, but I mean, that is... And that is devastating stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like the answer is probably probably the latter in, in mm-hmm. that this this could be or I guess it's it's really both. I mean, it's the this is the last cult film, but that's because it's it's set itself up as the prototype. So mm-hmm. now anything like this is it's not going to be transgressive at all. It's going to be, you know, somebody's vanity project. And the only thing that we're going to be able to indulge in is kind of a quirky personality or something like that, or just a sort of chaotic, you know, whimsical, you know, effort of some kind. Thinking about other cult films, the the sort of cult films that she's alluding to, I think, as better cult films might be something like David Lynch or John Waters, people who were genuine kind of outsider art. Yeah, like Eraserhead. Yeah, like, or in the case of something like Pink Flamingos or Female Trouble, expressions of marginalized communities. One of the uh, bad filmmakers who I enjoy a lot, Frank D'Angelo of, of <laughs> you know, Toronto fame, the, the Toronto businessman turned vanity filmmaker. When you laugh at Frank D'Angelo, there's a part of it that's kind of like, yeah, I'm laughing at this rich asshole yeah. who is just funneling a billionaire's money yeah, into his movies. Making making these like, you know, knockoff Z-Stream Godfather derivatives. Yeah, and... The room, it kind of looks like you're laughing at this underdog, this this weird guy, until you remember that, yeah, he is a rich guy and the joke is kind of on us. He was like, he was able to fuck up by getting two cameras yeah. and making the movie with two very expensive cameras, which he bought. Nobody buys cameras to make a movie like that. And yeah. He bought them both. He made the, he just filmed it twice. And like, we're laughing at him, but he's now laughing all the way to the bank. And, you know, by all accounts, he is a genuinely unpleasant man in real life. Yeah. Hey, Sorry, please. and Trent, guess what? Don't act stupid. No smoking. Don't act Who's stupid. smoking? Hey. Smoking what? Hey, Troy, don't act stupid, okay? We know what you're doing. Yeah. Have a nice day, Charlie. Bye, Bye. 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 What a day. That was the tent from. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people have pressure with money all the time. Well, at least we got his rent. Yeah, well, we need for your car, too, as well. But like you said, seriously, what a day. What a day. There was a guy who worked on the room named Sandy Schklar. I'm not sure what his official credit in the film. <laughs> the Sven Nyquist of the Tommy Wiseau universe. He got some headlines because he claimed to have sort of ghost-directed the movie. He was played by Seth Rogen in The Disaster Artist. You know, when I first heard his claims, I kind of thought, oh, yeah, this is just a guy trying to cash in. But watching The Neighbors, it made me realize, you know, what? he probably did basically ghost direct the room because the room, even though it is Tommy Wiseau's vision, it has an adherence to film grammar. Uh It has a level of competence that is not in The Neighbors. And if you think we're being ironic or that that's an exaggeration... Pair any scene, any of your favorite scenes in the room from, you know, high doggy to I got the test back and I definitely have breast cancer. Pair the, the visual grammar of those scenes with any clip you could find on YouTube of the neighbors, which is <laughs> it would be very flattering to say it had a dreamlike quality. But no. it, would be, it would be inaccurate. I mean, it is visual chaos. Um, mm-hmm. It is, you know, Star Wars Attack of the Clones level visual density. Every scene has 
too much visual information. Uh, there is a jarring color palette of this kind of burning bright yellow that just pierces your eyes. It's physically unpleasant to look at. You want to look away it's from nauseating. it. It's nauseating. And it makes you realize the just craftsmanship of any other sitcom a show like last man standing mm-hmm. is so much better than this <laughs> just on a craft level <laughs> like most sitcoms understand that you can't put five american flags in the background you can't put signs that mm-hmm. have text on them uh-huh. because the viewer will be too busy looking at the text and reading the text and that distracts from the gag yeah you can't have in a half hour episode an A story, a B story, a C story, a D story, an E story. You can't introduce characters in one scene and then just not have them reappear in the same episode or, you know, not have the arc kind of even invoked again. Tommy Wiseau has no sense of structure. The only instances of structure in The Neighbors are that there's a room which is kind of the management office in this building. The whole, we don't know where this building is. We don't know who these people are. It's very much a, you know, beginning in media res type situation. It's a Boschian vision. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We get, there's an establishing shot, which we're going to, we're going to have to talk about later. It deserves to be dealt with, you know, just by itself. But But basically, there's this room, which is kind of the management office in this building. And the building, even though we see it from the outside, and it looks like it has about, you know, it's a multi-story, you know, residential complex. But we're led to believe that there's only about 10 tenants here, two of which are the, you know, managers themselves. Tommy Wiseau, who's, you know, I did not pick up the name of that character or any other character in this. And a woman who it's inferred he's in some kind of, he, you know, he's had relations with. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then there are a number of would-be, you know, hip young people throughout the building who walk around with their shirts off or in bikinis or whatever. And uh, that's basically what The Neighbors is. There are lots of characters. It's very much a war and peace kind of situation. There are a lot of characters, too many to follow, um, and you just kind of have to let it wash over you. For longtime Tommy Wiseau scholars like us, the show is most interesting as just kind of a glimpse into Tommy Wiseau's psyche. Anything Wiseau makes is him enacting a fantasy. And this show offers various lifestyles that he wishes he could live. Uh-huh. But also ones that he's just imagining. Because yeah. they don't actually exist. Yeah. So Tommy plays two roles. He plays the this confident smooth but authoritative i guess superintendent of this building and the other role he plays is uh, a, a younger cool guy i learned from wikipedia that he's a petty thief who is the chief antagonist of the show but i don't think that's communicated he's just a cool guy who wears cool like clothes, football shirt and, and he, like and he's got a blonde wig and he's got a girlfriend so tommy wants that but also there's a stoner character and this is why he lives he lives in apartment 420. This is why this show is relevant to this week. There's a cool jacked guy uh, uh-huh. who, who wears Wiseau brand underwear. You know, and we don't really say too more, too much more about that, but I would just say there's a lot going on there. There are several female characters who only wear bikinis. Uh-huh. Um, they're, they're big bosoms. Uh-huh. Every scene in The Neighbors, or virtually every scene, feels like something that would be in kind of a low-budget casting couch type scenario. Like, 
there are kind of periodically these scenes where all the characters will come together in the main office. That's the only time we ever get to see them all together. And they'll be awkwardly grouped together, like they're posing for a big group photo. Yeah, and every episode ends with them kind of just having a big party, but the party will quickly descend into kind of orgy territory, and you'll see, like, the jacked guy will have, like, whipped cream on his nipples, and the female characters will be, like, licking licking it off or whatever. Sex is always, like, simmering under the surface <laughs> of this. There are many scenes in the show where, like, a woman and a man, like, there are 14 characters in this show easily, but a woman and a man will, will be doing laundry together, and the woman will start coming on to the uh-huh. man. And, and even, even some of the characters are sort of, like, archetypes that feel like they're out of porn. Like, the yeah. the muscly guy, he's just always wears, like, a tool belt. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of like that thing where the plumber comes <laughs> Well, there comes is literally like... a pizza delivery scene in this movie. And, of course, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, when are they going to start having sex? But they don't. <laughs> But I guess that doesn't even matter. Like, sex is simmering under the surface of literally every well, scene I mean, in this show. I mean, part of this did actually air on Hulu, so I guess he could only include so much. You know, the, the big business is always crushing, you know, the, the, the creative desires of our, <laughs> of our great geniuses. So obviously the main agenda of the show, just as the main agenda of the room was that he wanted to make out with a young woman. Mm -hmm. The agenda of this show is he just wants to be surrounded by young people. And there are lots of scenes that aren't scripted. It's just people hanging out in a room and they're, they're, I I suspect they are scripted, which is kind of even better. (laughs) Well, they're, they're throwing icing on each other and they're Mm. cavorting and they're drinking. I mean, most most of our listeners are in their twenties. So they, I mean, that's just the life they live all the time. I'm sure you'll see lots that you'll identify with on the show. And Tommy, I guess, missed out on this experience (laughs) when he was a young man and he wants to create it, but like, he doesn't understand this isn't, actually real (laughs) most 20 somethings lives i think were a little more mundane than this i like to think that he's not actually playing two characters i have a kind of lacanian analysis of (laughs) of the neighbors where it's like lost highway where the two characters are actually just the same they're just a fractured psyche it's like on the new twin peaks it's dougie and ancient (laughs) dale cooper (laughs) i find something a bit moving about this show because it it goes to show that like even if you are rich, like Tommy Wiseau is, you can't buy a soul. There are limits. Yeah, yeah, you can't just... like That's what this show obviously is. He's trying to buy young Craigslist actors to be around him. And that can only go so far. Well, not only can you not buy a soul, you can't buy basic cinematic competence either, it turns out. No. At least not on this budget. Well, this is the first completed Tommy Wiseau audiovisual project <laughs> to emerge after the room. <laughs> And so it's the first Wiseau project that came in the so bad it's good era. (laughs) And so clearly the Hulu executives or whoever pumped some money into this were like, well, hands off, Tommy, do your thing. (laughs) And what they found out is that I guess one of the reasons why the room is what it is is because there was a tension between this this crazy person, this this idiot, this this (laughs) absurd man and actual competent Hollywood professionals who he hired. (laughs) And that doesn't exist anymore. So we need to talk about what I affectionately refer to as the loading screen of the neighbors, because there's a a, a recurring trope of it, uh, a motif, if you will, that makes the show kind of feel like a video game. 
probably 10 to 15 times an episode, there's a little like visual purgatory you find yourselves in that's a little bit like the, you know, base pocket on Seinfeld that's so iconic or something, except it doesn't last two or three seconds with like an establishing shot of New York or something. It lasts for, I mean, what feels like about 10 minutes. Yeah, uh, as, it's probably 15 to 30 seconds. Yeah, but it's, you reach a point, even the first time you see it, where you think, this is a few seconds too long. And then it carries on a few seconds beyond that, and then a few more seconds beyond that. And, I mean, it does look like a video game. It has a sort of late 1990s internet kind of feel, like the characters are rendered as sort of primitive GIFs. And so there's the cool football player, fratty Tommy Wiseau character with his blonde wig, and, and it's only two frames, but it's him, uh, you know, with a basketball. But there's also kind of a hint of whimsy to all of it because there's like a dinosaur that keeps leaning in and out and mm -hmm. breathes fire and it kind of bites the ground. And then there's this very quickly insufferable musical theme, which, you know, if you're this far into the episode, you'll already be familiar with. Yeah, the image, you see the exterior of the apartment building and you see this dinosaur in this tree and... On the exterior of the apartment building, I wish I, I wish you could see it right now, but please watch the neighbors on YouTube and you'll see it. You see inside all the windows and they'll have somebody in them. And I encourage you to see it and then Google the poster for Andy Warhol's Chelsea Girls. <laughs> it's an uncanny similarity. <laughs> I do think that this screen, which really does feel like the menu screen in a video game mm -hmm. and like each room in the apartment complex is like a different level or something. Yeah. I do think it maybe tells us something about what Tommy Wiseau thought he was doing with the neighbors. Because I think, you know, his premise, the one he had in mind was, it's about the whimsical interactions of a bunch of hip young people mm. uh, in an apartment complex and kind of the somewhat zany, but largely kind of, you know, straight and, and with it and well-adjusted, you know, managers of the building. And just on paper, that doesn't sound so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And the screen, you know, with its kind of whimsy and its like dinosaur character is kind of poking fun at all that. And it's like, ah, but this is such a generic setting, but there's so much craziness happening behind the scenes. Like, that's what I think he thinks he's doing. But the last question I have is where the hell is this building? Th there's no sense that the outside world exists. There's not a single exterior shot. Yeah. Like that thing in the room where, you know, they're just in an alleyway playing basketball and it's not clear like where this is or why they're just, why they would choose to play basketball up against a brick wall. Like it's, you know, grade three recess or something. This has that, but to like the nth degree, because the building just feels like it exists in its own, it's its own diegesis. Like there's kind of a slightly LA vibe to the neighbors, but it's not clear like where this is at all. It's an LA vibe only in the sense that all the actors look like they were sourced from Craigslist and they look like the sorts of people that might have gone to LA and tried to <laughs> hack a career at being an actor. The show that I thought of most watching this was Faulty Towers, of course. Equally good, you know, competent shows. Also, uh, six episode seasons. <laughs> you know, the, the parallels are endless. <laughs> Faulty Towers opens with that exterior establishing shot mm -hmm. where you see the hotel. And then the interior of the hotel is just this kind of masterclass of 
sitcom choreography. You know what the space is, and you know there's an outside world, and you kind of get a sense of what Torquay is mm-hmm. as a setting. It's, Torquay in Faulty Towers is much like Slough is in The Office. Or San Francisco is to the room. The identity of the city informs the identity of the hotel. I don't think I would be wrong to say that The Neighbors lacks that, <laughs> although it also has that in a bit. It, it, it is L.A. <laughs> but of course, in all other respects, it's exactly like Faulty Towers. Yeah, I'm sure like in Faulty Towers, he spent like four years writing it and he took a long break between seasons <laughs> because he just had to get it exactly right. Anyway. So, on to more important matters. What important matter? What are you talking about? I heard he has guns. Oh yeah, yeah he does actually. Can I buy a gun? Yeah, what kind of gun do you want? A shotgun. Wait a minute, why you want a gun? You have a gun right here in the morning, afternoon, in the evening. No, I don't want Free of charge. I want a gun. So after much uh, toiling in the content mines, we finally hit 350 patrons on uh, Patreon. Thanks so much to everybody who subscribed. There's a great little community on there. We really appreciate all the suggestions we get, the feedback, the engagement. Get in touch with us, post on uh, the community board. We love hearing from you. There's a fun little kind of teaser to accompany this episode or a fun little bonus, which is that Will actually interviewed Tommy Wiseau. And I don't know, maybe you could tell us a little bit about this is another bit of, you know, Will and Luke varsity lore. Yeah, this was in the waning days of when we were editors at the U of T varsity newspaper. And Tommy Wiseau was in town. And, you know, as I said earlier with Tommy Chong, every now and then offers would come across your desk that you just couldn't resist. (laughs) My approach with Tommy Wiseau was to interview him as if he were a real filmmaker. Mm -hmm. So I think you will see a different side of Tommy on this Patreon bonus exclusive. Yeah, so if you want to hear well interview Tommy Wiseau, uh, go over to the Patreon and uh, subscribe. We'll have a little uh, little teaser for you, but uh, we hope you enjoy that. Uh, it's a fun little treat uh, from uh, the Disney vault. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the show for the week. We'll be back next week with an episode on the Patreon, and we'll just leave you today with uh, Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, uh, a great piece of revolutionary, high-modernist musical art, also chosen by Tommy Wiseau as the theme song to his hit sitcom, The Neighbors. Now watch this drive. Drive.